Welcome to this Gresham lecture, which I've entitled What Surgery Can Learn from Fighter Pilots and Polar Explorers. So I'm Roger Kneebone, Professor of Surgical Education and Engagement Science at Imperial College London and Gresham Visiting Professor of Medical Education. And I run two centres. One is a centre for performance science, jointly between Imperial College, where I'm based, and the uh, the Royal College of Music, just round the corner. This is a uh, photograph of the of the College of Music, um, and I also lead the Centre for Engagement and Simulation Science at, at Imperial College, and I'm going to draw on these two perspectives over the course of this lecture. Before I go any further, I want to to make some acknowledgements. Um, First of all, to Dougal Goodman and Phil Bayman, whom I'll be introducing in a little while, who'll be joining me for the um, for, 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 for much of this lecture. Also, Chris Peters, consultant surgeon, colleague of mine, Pieter Jonasson, um, professor of classical guitar in Iceland, um, Terry Clark and Aaron Williamson, my colleagues from the Royal College of Music, all of whom who have made um, big contributions to the area we're going to discuss. Um, and for those of you who are interested, I'd like to point out also my, my fortnightly podcast called Countercurrent with all of the people um, that I've just mentioned and many others besides. So if you are interested in that, then there is the link. So this lecture forms part of a series. Um, it's the 11th in a series of lectures, which I've called Performing Medicine, Performing Surgery. And the idea that I've been exploring in these lectures um, is that is that medicine, the practice of medicine, I think, takes place at an intersection between science and skills and performance. And it occupies a central position at the intersection between those. But, but for many of us, particularly when we're patients, I think it's the performance that is most in evidence. And so I want to explore some aspects of the idea of performance. Last year, in, in August last year, um, Penguin, Viking Penguin published my book, Expert, Understanding the Path to Mastery. And I'm going to draw on in this lecture on a, a number of ideas that I explored in that book, which looks at what is the process that people go through as they move from knowing nothing at all about a subject to becoming so expert that they pass on their knowledge to somebody else. Um, and in this book, I've outlined a, a pathway, a trajectory, which goes, as I say, from uh, from knowing nothing at, at, at all as an apprentice. And here I'm I'm using the the, the well-known um, medieval guild model of a progression from being an apprentice where you, you, you know nothing to begin with and you're working in somebody else's workshop, you're doing what you're told uh, and you're you have relatively little agency to becoming independent to going out into the into the world and applying your craft or your trade as an independent person um, going across the, your, your your country in those days hence the, the name until eventually you become a master and you take on responsibility for a workshop of your own with your own apprentices I should point out that these these are these are our traditional terms they're, they're no longer gendered of course these days but I think they are a useful framework which is familiar to many people but I I, uh, in this book, I, I try to to elaborate on that and to, to, to give a greater sense of, of depth 
by explaining in detail what are the internal processes that people go through along that pathway. So in this diagram, along the top are those three stages. Um, and the uh, the arrow, of course, represents the path, but but I've divided these stages into um, into elements that I think help to explain the processes that we all of us go through. So in the apprentice phase, I've, I've started by talking about doing time when you're just there, you're doing stuff that other people insist you do, whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, and, and quite often you don't. But in the process, even though it seems very often boring and repetitive and not particularly productive in the, in the process, crucially important things are happening. You're, you're learning how to make sense of the world that you've chosen to go in, the materials that you're using, the people that you're working with, and you learn how to work with space, with the environment, the context that you're in. The next stage, the journeyman stage, is a particularly interesting one because I think two important shifts have to take place. One is from thinking that you're from your focus of attention being all about yourself and the things that you've learned, the things that you can do and the things that you can demonstrate that you've learned, you have to make a transition from that to the reason you're doing those things in the first place, the people, the other people you're doing them for. And it might be a patient, if you're clinical, it might be a customer or a client or a member of an audience, if you're a performer, all kinds of things. And in a sense, you have to subordinate all the stuff that you've learned because you're doing it for somebody else. But at the same time, and, and often this can seem almost paradoxical, at the same time, you are developing your own individuality. What makes you, you? You're not just an interchangeable cipher, you're becoming the person you are. Um, and then finally, when you move to that, that stage of becoming a master, you're then taking a different kind of responsibility, not only for the work that you do, but for other people who are coming on um, treading in the path that you yourself have, have gone along. Um, and so that's a sort of a sort of skeleton of how I see that process. But there are there are various um, experiences that we all have along the way. And I think a crucially important one is about the things that go wrong. To begin with, as an apprentice, things will of course go wrong, but but the system kind of expects that to happen. And your master, whoever is responsible for the place you're working in, takes takes the responsibility also for the errors that you make, as well as for the, taking the credit for the things that you do well. But as you get further on in that journeyman stage, say you are you are having to deal in a different way, taking responsibility yourself for the things that that, that go wrong and for putting them right. And then in that stage of being a master, you're then having yourself to take responsibility for allowing, perhaps encouraging other people to do things when maybe you know that you yourself could do them better, but you have to allow other people to make their own mistakes or they won't develop either. So I'm going to take you um, to the world of surgery for a moment, just to give you a couple of glimpses of the kind of things that I experienced. And I'm going to show you um, the first few seconds of an operation that a surgical team is doing on a patient who's been run over um, to try and find out what's going wrong. Now, this this isn't a real operation. It's a simulation. I mentioned earlier that I run a center for simulation science. It's a simulation of an operation, but it's quite realistic. So if you do feel at all queasy, I, I just uh, give you a word of warning. Um, but just to give you your bearings, we're looking at a, an operating team in the center facing towards us. We see the 
um, the principal surgeon. Opposite her is her first assistant. On the left of the screen, as we see it, is the scrub nurse, that crucial member of the team who is there with a set of instruments. On the right of the picture, um, equally important, of course, the anaesthetist keeping the patient asleep and safe. And then at the extreme right, another member of the, of the team who is going to fetch some equipment. So we just join them as they start at the very beginning when they're trying to make sense of a situation. Fair bit of blood in here actually, so let's pack the four quadrants. Okay, oh dear, quite a lot of blood swelling up here. Don't worry, that's the retractor, so we'll get that back inside so you can see what we're doing. We'll really attach a suction, right? Underneath there. Okay, can I have suction on, please? Okay. So I hope you could hear that all right. The, 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 the point I wanted to make here was that we have people, highly specialised, highly skilled people from different areas of the clinical professions coming together to work collectively in an environment where much is, much is uncertain. We don't know yet what is wrong with this patient. And so um, making sense of that uncertainty is part of what these people have to do, part of what they're trained to do. And it takes me back to my first career, if you like, which was as a as a, a general and trauma surgeon, uh, when I spent five or more years in Southern Africa, to begin with in Soweto. This is Soweto at the time in the 1980s on the outskirts of Johannesburg. At that time, one of the most violent um, areas in the in in the world um, and served by one enormous hospital called Baraguanath, now Chris Hardy Baraguanath Hospital, where the conditions were very different from what I'd been used to uh, as a trainee and a medical student in the UK, um, very different kind of environment to work in and also a very different kind uh, of, of surgery. So here is a, a photograph from that time, from the 1980s. I'm over there on the on the right of the picture with a beard as the lead surgeon with a, a small group of people doing a big operation in the middle of the night. Opposite me is my first assistant, who was uh, a very junior doctor. On the left in white is the anaesthetist. And on the right, you can just see uh, further in the background, the theatre sister, absolutely crucial member of the team. Um, and there um, I was having to do very often very big operations, demanding operations, operations that put me very often at or sometimes, as I felt at the time, beyond perhaps, certainly my uh, my my area of, of, of confidence, and sometimes pressing up against the boundaries of what I was able to do. And and then I was often um, dealing with uncertainty and and risk. Um, and so I'm just going to. I'm just going to, to recall a, an episode that's stuck in my mind ever since and, and read from my description of that in, in my book, Expert. So I said in, in the following excerpt, I recall an occasion when I was operating at night on a patient with penetrating chest and abdominal wounds, and they looked rather like, um, rather like this one over here. I didn't even know the patient's name at the time, I write, as he was almost dead from blood loss when he arrived. We had to take him straight to theatre. As I finished dealing with his abdominal injuries, his condition plummeted and I realised I had to go into his chest. The knife that stabbed him must have been a long one as there was bleeding from the great vessels near the heart. I hadn't seen much thoracic surgery, let alone done any. And yet again, I was way outside my comfort zone, but there was no alternative. So I carried on. 
Thoracic surgery is a specialised field and needs specialised instruments. After opening the chest, I found that blood was hosing from one of the large vessels to the lung. I could see where it was coming from and I needed to stop it fast if my patient was to survive. In this kind of emergency, you can't take your eye off the site of injury and your scrub nurse plays a vital role by putting what you need into your hand. On this occasion, the nurse with me hadn't done much thoracic surgery either. I asked for an angled clamp to control the bleeding, held out my hand and felt the instrument's handle hit my palm. I was just about to place it across the fragile vessel when I realised that instead of the soft vascular clamp I was expecting, she'd given me a bronchial clamp. This has murderous spikes in its jaws designed to grasp the stiff cartilage of the air passages. It would have cut the delicate pulmonary vessels to shreds. And to this day, I can feel the pounding of my heart as I realised what a narrow escape my patient and I had both just had. And I, I recall that episode because it, 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 it makes me think now, looking back, that I was, I was focusing on one part, but only one part of a bigger picture. And so another example of a close call uh, is here. Keep the pressure uh, there, yeah? Yes, okay, well, well, before. This is um, a simulation, and we see the surgeon on the left as she is dealing with a an emergency in her operating theatre. I should point out that she is an extremely experienced consultant surgeon, and she is playing a role. But the role, I think, um, illustrates a, a, a key point. And so we pick up the operation where she is struggling, and then we hear a conversation between her and the anaesthetist in the background. Thank you very much. Keep the pressure there, yeah? Yes, okay, but I'm trying to find what's bleeding. I need some work instruction. Who's helping us? We need some help in here. Emily, can you go and get someone else to help us? I can't ventilate. Okay, I'm sorry about that, but I can't ventilate this end. Okay, I'm hoping that that came over on the video. I could detect a couple of uh, problems with the sound there. So in case it didn't, um, she was operating. She's she's focusing very intently on what's wrong with the patient's abdomen, some organs inside. The anaesthetist at that point says, I'm having a problem here. I can't ventilate. And the surgeon just says, well, I, I can't deal with that now. I've got too much on my plate. I'm having to concentrate on what I'm doing. And she kind of blanks out this piece of really important information because the anaesthetist is saying that he can't get enough oxygen into the patient's lungs to keep the patient alive. Um, and so that is clearly something that takes priority over pretty much everything else. But the surgeon is focusing so much on her task that she's kind of not really taking that in in this in this simulation. And so I, I just wanted just in the last couple of minutes of, of this introduction to talk about the idea of, of where people place their attention, because I think this idea of beams of attention for me has been very helpful. Over there on the left, we see the surgeon from this aerial view. At the top of the picture, we see the anaesthetist looking at the patient's head. And on the right, we see the scrub nurse. So the surgeon's um, view, if you like, is very much um, the patient's internal organs. This is again a simulation, but it's what a surgeon might see, intestines, all kinds of things there. And that's what they're focusing on. The anaesthetist, on the other hand, has a different view entirely. The anaesthetist is looking at the patient's, particularly the patient's head, but thinking about how the patient's body is functioning, looking at monitoring equipment, looking at, um, at looking at how the patient's airway is working, whether oxygen is getting into their lungs, whether they are staying safely asleep. 
Whereas the scrub nurse has a different view again. He or she is looking at the instruments, looking also, of course, at what the surgeon is doing and the surgical team and needing to hand those instruments. But but their focus is a different one. And so you have these different these different points of attention coming together. Um, and and over the last year or two, I've been thinking about about this idea of different perspectives, not only different perspectives within a clinical team, say a, a team of, of surgeons, anaesthetists and scrub nurses, as I've explained, but, but what we might see if we looked outside medicine altogether. Um, about 18 months ago, I arranged for a, a, a number of us to come together for um, for a whole day to explore some of these ideas. Um, two of them you're just about to meet. Another one was the classical guitarist I, I meant, another met, met um, another of my surgical colleagues, to explore the idea that if we look not so much at a particular area of, of, of professional practice, but if we thought perhaps in terms of what does it mean to deal with risk and error and recovery and resilience, what might those um, what might those ideas involve? What might we, as surgeons, be able to learn from other people? What might those other people be able to learn from surgeons and from one another? And so, for the rest of this lecture, I'm, I'm I'm going to we're going to have a conversation between me and two very distinguished colleagues whom I'm going to introduce now. Um, and so, without further ado, I'm going to start by introducing. Um, experienced combat pilot and many, many other things, Phil Baker. Hi, thank you very much for that. And the uh, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, good evening, everybody. My name is Phil Bateman. It's an absolute honour to be here today. Um, the next three, four, five minutes, I'm just going to chat a little bit more about what I do and just to give you a little insight into my world, which can then develop into the conversation. Okay, so that's me. This is a uh, photo album that pretty much summarises my life for the last 25, 30 years. Um, after leaving university, I studied biochemistry and genetics at Oxford. Um, I joined the Air Force to be a fighter pilot. And like many of uh, many people, it took me five years to carry out my apprenticeship. And then I moved to the front line flying tornadoes. And those are the aircraft that you see um, in the sort of top left-hand corner of the screen. Um, I then spent five, six years flying tornadoes, perfecting the craft, learning what it takes, learning about the limitations, managing risk, and also learning a lot and receiving a lot of feedback from the people that, that I was uh, that I was working with. Um, I then had a calling to become an instructor, and I then spent my last 15 years instructing and performance coaching combat pilots. Um, I've mastered a total of four and a half thousand hours, and in my time, I've worked with 450 students, each one of those uh, an honour to work with and a great opportunity to learn about people and what it means to actually understand a perspective. I should say when I started instructing, I was shown how to do it. It's a very technical aspect to it, show somebody how to do it. I talked a lot. I probably overwhelmed people, but in my own mind, in my own world, I thought I was doing right. And over the next 15 years, it took me a while to realise that in actual fact, silence was golden and actually understanding it, the model that's in somebody's mind then became more important. So I'm going to move on now just to show what it's like in the flying side of things. I know that um, 
many of you probably want to see some combat um, pictures. But what I've got here is got a, another great milestone in in my RAF career. My one of my last few days in the Air Force was actually taking part in the RF 100 flypast. I'm sure most of you remember it is two and a half years ago. Great party, the world stopped and everybody um, took and uh, everybody. Well, hopefully everybody came out there. And I was in one of the nine ships, which is on the box on the left-hand side. And I've got a short video now, which I'm going to show you, which is a cockpit footage from inside my formation. Um, and I'm just going to chat a little bit. Obviously, there's no combat, but it still gives you the same idea. And hopefully it's something that potentially may be more relatable. So this is a video. It's an in-house video. And that's the kind of environment that you're working with. And when you compare it to surgeons at medicine, you've probably seen a similar level of technology, albeit different. You're working with other people, but you've also isolated from other people. There's obviously got issues. You've got issues with the engineers. You've got levels of complexity. And you see there, there's a big team. So you've got a lot of communication. So although what may seem larger than a surgical team, in actual fact, it's probably just exactly the same extended family. Some of this footage is that we were preparing to run in over the top of uh, London and Buckingham Palace. And the camera's just spinning around a little bit, just to give you an idea. Now, the question is, how do you manage risk and how do you manage complexity here? And there's a lot of assumptions we make here, but there's a lot of mutual support. The picture you've got now in the video is overflying London. Now, when you're trying to put 100 aircraft together to overfly London with with split second second position, you can imagine the variability and contingencies. Obviously, there were lots of practices, but in a dynamic and changeable world like combat aviation, things change. And how you manage that is a, is a thing we're going to chat in a few minutes. Um, there's a few of my other colleagues that I work with. Uh, there's the teams. Uh, the big thing that I think that it does share a great similarity is that when it's all finished, um, everybody only remembers the good side of things. The RF celebrates 100 great newspapers. But the one thing that is equally thought-provoking is the fact that quite easily you're on the precipice of things going horrendously wrong. And even the lack of attention or the lack of detail or not controlling the plan can lead to such situations like that. And obviously, if you imagine a scene like that on the RF 100, you can imagine the impact that that would have. That's my introduction. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Phil. That, that, that's, that's fascinating. Um, my other my other guest is um, has got a very different background, and, and so it's a great pleasure now to introduce Dr. Dougal Goodman, polar explorer, and many other things besides. So, Dougal, over to you. Thank you, Roger, and thank you very much for the invitation to speak today. So, what I'm going to start with is just to thank you to the many staff in the NHS and social services for protecting us from the COVID-19 virus. Stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. But an underlying issue is assessment of risk. And that's what I'm going to major on once I've described my career so far. Now, I got involved in expeditions through reading Shackleton's South when I was age 14. And I decided that come what may, I would go to the Antarctic. I went to Cambridge and read natural sciences. Unfortunately, in the Cavendish Laboratory, which is the physics department in Cambridge, there was somebody who was working on ice, and I decided to do a PhD on the mechanical properties of ice so I could go to the Antarctic. My supervisor was extremely helpful in letting me do this. But also, I went on a number of expeditions in the Arctic, 
particularly in Greenland and in Alaska and in Canada, working on ships, traveling by helicopter, but also traveling by sledge. And I was very fortunate on my first expedition to travel down the northwest coast of Greenland with a skidoo and a tent and a companion who had been on many expeditions before. And as we've heard so far, the whole question of how the team works together as an efficient unit is crucial to success. We were fortunate, however, to arrive at our scientific location to find a group of Greenlanders hunting polar bear and seals, who of course have been there for thousands of years. So when we were regarding ourselves as tough explorers, this group had lived year round in this part of the coast of Greenland, living off the land. And we learned from them in telling stories about their life in that region. In the Antarctic, I was fortunate enough to go to the Antarctic first with the US Antarctic program to McMurdo Sound. Also later in my career, I became deputy director of the British Antarctic Survey and had the opportunity to visit the vast spaces on the peninsula and South Georgia and the South Orkney Islands. This is a picture from my first expedition to the Antarctic. The Arctic and the Antarctic are beautiful places. You have this crystal clear view of the mountains. That's Mount Erebus in the background, 13,000 foot high. I had to learn to drive this track vehicle because where the ice met the coast, big pools were forming and the pickup truck I was using to drive out to the airfield became rather challenging as it stuck in the ice on the way back one day. So they gave me this vehicle from the motor pool, which I had to learn to drive. Now, what we were doing on the airstrip was monitoring how the ice deflected as planes landed. This plane has come in from New Zealand, Christchurch, and landed on the ice, which is a metre and a half thick. They clear the snow off the surface. In studying the way in which these aircraft are supported by the ice, you have to be very careful to keep the ice, the aircraft moving, because when it's sitting stationary, it gradually descends as the ice bends by creep. And sometimes the surface can be flooded, which can freeze in the wheels which of course is embarrassing to the Air Force. <laughs> I also had the opportunity to travel by helicopter to wherever I wanted to go. As a principal investigator, I could sign a chitty for a helicopter, which unfortunately you couldn't do on the British program, which is why I was pleased to go with the Americans. <laughs> now, let me just quote two things. From Amundsen, victory awaits him who has, has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for those who have not neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck. And from Raymond Priestley, the scientific leadership gave me Scott, the swift and efficient travel Amundsen. But when you're in a hopeless situation and there seems to be no way out, get on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Expeditions depend on leadership. If you don't get the leadership right, you won't get the right outcomes, which I'm sure is as true in surgery and is, is in the RAF as it is in explorations. So what are the Arctic and the Antarctic are very unforgiving places. So one has to get into a very comprehensive view of risk management, which essentially is identify the risk, assess the risk, control the risk, transfer the risk or eliminate the risk. And we see in COVID-19 how challenging this is. We need to separate the acceptability of risk from the decisions as to what we're going to do. So 
senior management alone makes that decision. Constantly, the prime minister is saying, I'm following the science, but the politicians have to make the choices. And those choices are very challenging today. We also use the word risk rather loosely. A hazard is something which happens. A risk is something which happens with a probability. So risk is a combination of consequences, vulnerability, the over 80s, for example, and the likelihood. So I was set, going to set out a comparison to get the conversation going between what surgeons do and what explorers do. Clearly, training is essential for surgery. It's also important for people who go out into the Arctic and Antarctic. It's also important to be fit. We need special skills. We need to run simulations, as we've seen from Roger, whereas I would, in my situation, be looking at scenario analysis. We need to carefully pick the team. If people don't get on with each other in the middle of nowhere, there's no way out. We need to understand what the risk assessments are telling us. In hospital rules and regulations, that is defining the risk envelope. And we have professional societies who employ training for surgeons and also training for engineers, but not necessarily for explorers. There's a very interesting balance between the Hippocratic Oath, which says do no harm, and taking measured risks, which may lead to harm. We need to learn lessons from experience. As Roger was saying, the transition from apprentice to journeyman. And we need peer review. We need to expose what we're doing to other experts to check that it's satisfactory. And we need performance statistics. We've discovered how in many hospitals, some groups are not very good at surgery. And we only discover that by carefully collecting statistics. And we need checklists. We need to set out what might happen. So for example, an aircraft coming in to land on the British Antarctic Survey runway is a gravel airstrip. When the plane took off, it took off with the snow. So the pilot needs to switch from snow landing to wheel landing and needs a checklist to remind them to do that. And an experienced pilot will not say, well, I'm expert, I don't need the checklist. They will resort to checklists. I'm a great list maker and my children worry at times how I'm obsessed with making a list, but that's part of my exploration experience. So, Roger, I think well, we should turn yeah. to you. Well, well, indeed. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for those fascinating introductions. Um, so, so I thought maybe we could start by by, by thinking about how you recognise, how you make sense of risk. Dougal, you, you talked about, I mean, there, there, there are, it seems to me that there are some, some things where you, you know that there is a risk there. Um, and and you can see it coming, and you, you you're having to deal with it, or or maybe maybe a hazard would be a better way of, of putting it. I'm not sure, but you, there there are risks that you're aware of, but sometimes in situations there are risks that you you aren't aware of. And, and when I when I gave that example of of operating on somebody's chest when I wasn't experienced in that area and getting the wrong instrument, I I would not have predicted that. Uh, uh, it, it kind of happened and I had to recognise it and do something about it there and then in the moment. And and I guess both of you will be dealing with situations where you know there are some risks, but presumably there are also other risks that you that, yeah. that you can't always predict. So, Phil, I, I, maybe start with you. In, in your world, does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely, it makes total sense, and the uh, and and it's a really and it's a really good way of putting it. To be honest, the uh, the risk that you don't know about, 
Because one of the things that, that, that you often see in many accidents is something will happen and everybody will fixate on a certain aspect, an aspect of normal Piper Alpha and forget what goes on the side. Um, in terms of the combat aviation world, I think the key is information and, uh, and real-time information update and how we pass it between ourselves. Um, we talk about there's much ado about continual improvement and we kind of call it something different. We call it brief and debrief and our cycles work very, very quickly and we're very effective. So we hone communication. Um, we have a mental model. We have certain SOPs we have that we tend to follow, but everybody's acutely aware of what's going on. And the minute the minute the plan starts to unravel, or things start to deviate in, um, there's procedures that we do for communicating it. So, for example, in the operation that with the surgeon that was um, the, the sort of, you know, the surgeon was coming on the operation, the risk that obviously was being focused on there was the uh, was what was going on. But in actual fact, there was a greater risk that obviously was unaware um, and how you potentially look to use other people because the mutual mutual support cross cover continually improve it and using people to bounce ideas off for us is pretty important uh, and i'd say that's probably the key area that we'd use yeah. for, for for dynamic risks that's very interesting i mean i was thinking about it when i was thinking uh in my own experience you know to, to begin with your your when you're quite new to to something you're focusing a lot about the skills and the 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 particular things that you're doing and that can that can sort sort of take your attention away from the bigger picture Dougal, i was thinking about you showed that picture of that enormous track laying vehicle um i guess when you were when you were learning to to drive that there might have been other things i don't know about the weather or all sorts of things that you perhaps as a more experienced person would have picked up but when you were focusing on a particular part of the picture you might have overlooked do you think that makes sense in your experience yes it does what, what i would emphasize is the ability to improvise innovate and adapt if you're out in the middle of nowhere you're totally on your own if the primer stops working because you forgot to bring the pricker to open the hole you're snookered but you have to look at it in a positive way and say well what do i do next and you can't always phone home and say what do i do now <laughs> when i was working in the antarctic there was no satellite phone Whereas today in the Antarctic, the average scientist can phone mum every week. <laughs> so, so you're out there on your own. You, so you, you've got to rely, I guess you've got to rely, as, as you say, on, on, on your ability to improvise and, and adapt. And that, that, that ability to improvise, it seems to me, is a characteristic of many areas of expert practice. But it's something that you don't do on day one, isn't it? It's something that you, you, you kind of develop those skills as you become more experienced. Yeah. You can run a training program where you put the trainees under a, in a situation that they've never had to deal with before. I, I did a lot of fire training when I was working offshore in the North Sea. So in Dundee, there was a fire training ground with a three-story building in which they set fire to every floor and you had to put it out. And so by scenario planning and by practical training, you can prepare for those things that you haven't expected. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so there's something interesting then, isn't there, about, about, about recognising wow. when something's not as it should be and doing something about it. And Phil, I, I know when, when you, we talked before once, and when you first explained your world to me, you, you said something like this, I think, that to begin with, as a pilot, you're, you're giving all your attention or capacity to flying the plane. But by the time you get to be doing the kind of thing you describe with hostile sorties and things, mm -hmm. you are you're, you and your pilots are 
are using only a fraction, about 10 or 15 percent of their attentional capacity to actually fly the aeroplane, which for any most normal people would be uh, hugely daunting, I imagine, at supersonic speeds or whatever. But but the rest of that attentional capacity is doing other things. Say a bit more about that and what those other things are. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure I'm sure it parallels with polar exploring in certain the surgical the theatre. Um, the big thing is that you've kind of keep your your, your awareness because the chances are when something changes. Well, first of all, if something's different from what you expect and the plan starts unraveling, uh, then it's identification and doing something. Uh, and the buzz that we have is you've always got an escape lane, and I think I use the analogy of crocodiles climbing into your boat. And when you've got too many, you you escape lanes. So. So if your escape lane's closing down, then you need to use your escape lane before it before it closes. But I think when you look at a, a lot of things, that we call it target fixating. So, for example, when one is prosecuted attack, it's very easy to become, well, my objective is to, you know, do the target. So it absolutely subsumes your world. And it's very easy to overfocus on it. And the problem is when you get subsumed into that world, it's very difficult to step back from it. It's really, really, really deep because you're so subsumed that you don't know about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it absolutely does, actually, because I was think when I was thinking about, you know, your your metaphor of the crocodiles climbing into your boat, you can you can you. you uh, it's an interesting thing in medicine where, where they say that the, the fracture that is most often missed on an X-ray in an A&E department or something like that is the one after the one that somebody's noticed. So, you know, somebody's been involved in a motor car accident or something like that. You, you look at some x-rays, you see they've got a fracture of the arm and then you miss other fractures in the hand because you 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 feel that you've you've diagnosed something. That must be the whole story. And that's it. And you and, and, and this is a phenomenon that I think people experience in many different fields where 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 they can be drawn in to thinking that the, the, the a part of the problem is actually the whole problem. And therefore miss other bits of it. And 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 Dougal, I, I wondered if if you had that sort of experience because you must have to be balancing all kinds of things in sure. your mind, not sure. just where you're treading and not going through thin ice or whatever. Yeah. Sure. I, when I went, as I said, with the Americans to McMurdo Sound, I also worked on Erebus Glacier Tongue, which is quite close to McMurdo, and we were helicoptered out onto the glacier, set up camp, and then spent two months working measuring the, how the ice was deforming. And at the pickup time, a helicopter came and took away our tent and our stove and so on. And it couldn't fit everything in. So we were left on the ice and the helicopter disappeared and didn't come back. And we sat there working out how we would dig a snow holes to provide some protection. We could hear the radio operator calling, but he couldn't hear us. So we stepped up the radio calls and a station 500 miles away picked up our signal and called McMurdo and said, these people need picking up. About an hour later, the helicopter arrived just before the weather deteriorated and took us back. I went straight around to the radio room and said, what's going on? And they were totally overloaded because it was end of season and a lot of parties were returning. The helicopter pilot had gone off shift. So he'd done his 12 hours and had gone back to get his meal and hadn't handed over to the oncoming shift that we were still out there. Now, of course, with hindsight, you think, well, maybe we should have travelled first in the helicopter. But we were ready to innovate and adapt, mm. given the circumstances. But it was certainly quite a stressful time. A terrifying story. Well, I mean, it made me think of another area that we we talked a little bit about before once, I think, which was this, this question of not 
not not firing from the hip, not not responding immediately, mm. but uh, but but sort of being able to press pause for a, a minute or two, or maybe just a few seconds, yeah. and and not commit yourself to something before being sure that it's the right thing to do. Phil, I think you talked to, about it in terms of sitting on your hands and and counting to ten or or something like that. You know that 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 idea of 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 being able to uh, to get to a place where where you can breathe and and collect your thoughts and be confident that you're not making matters worse by committing yourself too soon. Does yeah, that makes sense to, to you as a pilot. Oh, absolutely, total sense. The um, one of the one it, if things start to to differ, if the mental model, your visual, you know. Of what's happening in the world doesn't match what what's starting to happen, then it's time to take stock. It's very easy to make snap judgment, and the way the mind works is quite often the instinctive reaction is what you see is all that there is, but invariably that's not the case. And um, being a and if you can afford the the time and to do it, it's well worth taking a step back. And that's something what certainly we we were doing in the aviation world. The minute you've got emergency, there's very very few emergencies are so life threatening. Um, and if you look at the accident reports. Quite often, you'll find that a lot of them will be made through assumptions, such as shutting down the wrong engine, um, or you know the, those those type of things. But certainly, being able to to step back for ten seconds, just stabilise the situation, get to a place of safety. If you're heading in the wrong direction, then just try and put yourself and put yourself normal, and just establish priorities. I think you, the medical world they call it triage. Um, but the big thing is, is that. That when you're sat in your aircraft and you're on your own and you can chat to people, but you're pretty limited generally. And one thing that you're always short of is resources. And I'm sure it's probably the same with surgery. You know, it wouldn't be nice to have a team of experts you could just turn around to. But if nothing more, it's a, it's an opportunity to think, right, what can I got? What resources have I got? And what really is the biggest crocodile? And sometimes actually standing back 10 seconds, have a think about it. Anything that you can't stand back for 10 seconds, then it's worthwhile just having a carefully rehearsed, this is what the plan's going to be, such as uh, I think we mentioned in the podcast, you know, if you've got a, a catastrophic engine failure on takeoff, you will have certain decision points and they'll be pre-noted what you do. So that's that question, Roger. Yeah, but I mean, it, I mean, I just make a comment on that. Hmm. I, I think sometimes it, there's a danger in standing back. Of course, you freeze the decision-making process. The person is just overcome and unable to make a decision. So in often in my world, it's important to take a decision, even if you're criticised afterwards for making the wrong decision. That's better than no decision. Mm. Yeah, doesn't it depend though on how fast it's happening? I mean, I know in, in surgery, in, in my experience, in trauma surgery, quite often you, you, you wouldn't know, well, very often you wouldn't know exactly what you were going to, to find when you opened somebody up, because you wouldn't know where a knife or whatever had, had gone. Yeah. And, and sometimes you would you would think that things were not too bad, um, and you'd be you'd be exploring and looking around, and all of a sudden you'd dislodge a clot or something. And there'd be an enormous gush of blood, and you'd realise that there was something very serious going on. And your instinctive reaction would be to uh, to grab a clip and put it on it to stop the blood mm. coming out. But actually, um, after a while, you, you realise that 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 could that that could lead to bad things because you could put a clip on the wrong place or you could be, you, you know, that that immediate response to try and stop something would would skew your judgment. And actually, um, you I came to realise that if you've got a great big enormous pack uh, of cloth and you put it in and you pressed really hard, it would almost always stop things, stop the bleeding. 
mm-hmm. for that moment. When you release the back, the bleeding would start again, of course, but it would nonetheless give you time to spend those 10 seconds or whatever thinking, okay, what's going on here? What should I do? Rather than rather than allowing your actions to bypass your brain. So I wasn't meaning that you would mm-hmm. defer making a decision for hours and hours at all, but that that immediate uh, instinct to do something can sometimes take you into uh, into bad places. I th- I think. And and Phil, I know you 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 talked about having decided in advance what a what a safe place m- might be with an example of coming down to land. Do you just want to to, to say that one again because I thought it was a very powerful instance. Yeah, this was uh, probably about, I think it's about 15, 20 years ago, and I was flying tornadoes at the time. And we have this procedure to land, which is called a visual in and break, um, which is you basically, you, you'd, you'd fly to the airfield about 500 feet, you're about 400, 450 miles an hour, just to get a beam, the threshold. You select idle, you put the air brake out, you roll to about 90 degrees angle bank and you pull quite hard on the stick and the buffet reduces the speed. Uh, and as you as you imagine, you do an orbit and as you orbit around there, you'll put the flaps down, you'll put the gear and you'll do your pre-landing checks just like you would do on an airliner. Uh, well, this happened to me and I came in visual and brake and I called it, said flaps down, gear down. And then I was just tipping finals. And just as I was tipping finals, I was just about to call air traffic, tell them I had the gear down. I looked down and expect to see three greens, three greens meaning that the gear is down. I had a look and the uh, in actual fact, there wasn't three greens, there are three blacks, three blacks meaning the gear hadn't even traveled. So my hand would whisk over, it had gone to maneuver it, but I hadn't actually put the, put the gear down. Um, the one thing I learned for well, my course of action was I then applied power and went round and went to a safe height because the big thing concerned me is what additional things was going on there because obviously my mental model and my ability to land the aircraft was cast serious judgments on that one and I afforded the time to be able to go round. Um, so, so have I got this right that you 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 realize you kind of got a sense that something wasn't right? Yeah. Well, you, you realized that you hadn't put your undercarriage down. So you didn't stop to think, now, why haven't I put my undercarriage down and and let me put it down? Instead, you did what you knew would take you to a safe place, which was to get faster and go higher. Yeah. And and then go start going around. Is is that right? And then you had time to think what to do. And and Dougal, I guess, you know, that, well, I mean, to me, that, as I said, that makes sense. That sort of knowing in advance what you can do, in my case, let's say, severe bleeding, press hard, Sure. Give you time to breathe. Dougal, does that work in the Arctic or or the other safety critical areas that you've been working in? Sure. I'm still there on the side of making the decision. Because things can very rapidly get out of control. And so if you haven't made that choice, you get into an even worse situation. Just just an an anecdote. I went up onto the Vanier ice cap in Iceland. When we set off, it was clear weather. And we had no tent because we were walking to a hut. And I kept saying to my companion, we've got to go faster, otherwise we're not going to get to the hut before the weather kicks in. And so we plodded on, but the crevasse field was very difficult. We had to keep zigzagging, which slowed us up, and the weather got worse. So eventually, having said all day that we've got to get a move on, I had to decide that we should stop. And I decided we should stop when we still had enough energy to make ourselves comfortable. And that was an important decision. Having said all day, get a move on, we stopped and bivouacked. And then she agreed to marry me. 
<laughs> so it worked out well. So so you're having to you're having to sort of monitor your internal resources. Then it sounds like a bit yes. like monitoring the amount of fuel in your airplane or something. I suppose, and and making a calculated decision that the point has come when it's safer to stop than to go on. Is is that yes. right? Yes, to make sure you've got enough energy in reserve to get things sorted. Mm. That's a, a very important lesson. I think the um, I think I, I imagine I imagine um, Dougal that probably beforehand you probably you probably looked at your contingencies and, and what ifs. You probably had them a clear idea of what was going to do, and as you were walking, you're probably working your what ifs. So I imagine that I imagine when things started to change, you were actually actually your contingency plan and and your what in if. What ifs? Sure, we, we made a list of what we needed to take with us, and we had a bivy bag and sleeping bags, of course, so we could make ourselves very comfortable. But if we'd left it too late, we'd be staggering about and probably gone down a crevasse. Mm. So, so, so that brings me on to something else I wanted to talk to you both about because, you know, we're in, in a way we're all interested in education. I think in, in sort of how to pass this this kind of thing on, and it seems to me that going back to that 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 sort of graph I, I outlined. When I was talking about my book, to begin with, you're you're learning to do it yourself, um, whether it's whether it's operating or whether it's exploring or whether it's flying airplanes, and then you get to the stage where you're where you're passing things on to other. Well, you're taking responsibility then for other people. You may be leading teams. You may be um, maybe training other people, and then you're 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 taking responsibility for for other people's journey. And there comes a time, presumably when you know they have to do things that entail risk sure. but, but you've got to hand that over to them and you've got to but but in a sense you've got to manage that as far as you can and i mean in, in my case it would be my consultant who would say um look you do this one roger i'll, I'll be in the coffee room if you need me mm-hmm. uh sort of thing and, and and there is that point isn't there where you where you hand over and i wondered if we could talk a bit about that because that's that's handling a different it's, it's gauging and handling a different kind of risk, isn't it? The risk that other sure, people sure. wouldn't do I, as well as you I, would. I, on my first expedition, I traveled with somebody who had done 10 previous expeditions, and he knew how to do it. So I learned enormously from looking over his shoulder, and it would have been difficult to do that in the classroom. Now, at some point, you have to let go and say, do well, now you lead the expedition. So and, you've got enough confidence and enough experience to take that on. And Phil, that, that maybe that goes back to what you were saying earlier when you thought that teaching to begin with was about the technical side but then you realized that it was much more about the people yeah and the uh certainly was and the um i think it was in um in in this sort of i call them the bad old days when it was sort of you know sort of dog eat dog and and teaching was i will do it you just copy me and that's what it was a pure technical um but over the years i realized that in actual fact people came to you with far more capability than, than i ever gave them credit for um the only thing they hadn't done is uh, is just sort of validated the model they have in the mind um I'm a firm believer that a growth mindset drives technical excellence and being able to help, being able to, what you really want to know, to be able to let people know is you really, partly the technical side of things, but really you need to know whether their judgments, um, what, you know, what, how they, how they visualize the world, how they will cope with things, because no two days, you know, surgery is much like polar exploration, is a combat aviation like offshore oil and gas, it's no two days are the same. So, it, it's almost semi-pointless me trying to to evaluate that they can do something technically if I don't know the judgments. But how you access the judgments and how you get those high order really to me involves building trust with somebody. And for me, it's communication and benevolence. 
uh, and how you start the conversation, because I think we've all been privy to debriefs or briefs where people have been sort of, you know, quite harsh, whereas we've probably all experienced ones where somebody's you've got a really nice trust and you can chat about that. Yeah, so there's something, isn't there, about about helping people develop the sort of resilience to, you talked about coping, but to, to, to make something positive of the experiences they have, even if things have gone wrong, um, and and sort of not allowing people to uh, to have their confidence completely completely demolished, but on, on the other hand, obviously take take things very seriously when 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 things do go awry. And, and there's something about getting that balance right, isn't there, in in helping people grow into using these experiences that will always happen in a in a positive way rather than a destructive way. And mm-hmm. I wonder what your thoughts were, Dougal. You you must have heard it's, about this. It's, it is difficult to train people to be leaders. You can discover leaders through an interviewing process. But the key issues for a leader is taking the initiative, taking action, driving and supporting inquiry, questioning, researching and verifying understanding, advocacy, expressing convictions and championing ideas, decision making, evaluating resources, choices and consequences. This is key to it. Conflict resolution, confronting and resolving disagreements. In a team of surgeons, I'm sure there is often issues where you need to confront the reality. There's yeah, resilience, okay. dealing with problems, setbacks and failures. And critique, delivering objective, candid feedback, not holding back and saying, well, I'll upset that person if I tell them they got it dreadfully wrong. Yeah, absolutely. But take them to the side and say, you know, that didn't work, did it? Yeah, I suppose yeah. that's back to what you were saying about it, when things are really bad, you need a Shackleton. I mean, you know, the, the, it's about personality, isn't it, of, of, yeah. of people as um, well. As, as I well as understand in surgery, there used to be very close-knit teams where the nurses and the consultants and the other members were all part of the same team and they worked shifts together. So they bonded as a team. But because of changes to legislation about the number of hours junior doctors could work, those teams were broken up. Is that right, Roger? Yeah, it doesn't work now. It just means I think that we have to think about it in a different way and perhaps perhaps not take so many things for granted as, as people often did because they had sort of developed in a in an existing team over a long time. If, if, if teams are having to be constituted and reconstituted newly much more often, then I think those things that we've been talking about are become increasingly important. You know, how you how you make those things explicit and i suppose that brings me back really to 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 where we started the idea that you can um that you can learn stuff about your own world from people who are not in it and i mean the conversation we've just been having i think has pointed out a whole lot of 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 areas where we have we have kind of common experiences but we're in very different worlds and i mentioned earlier the conversation we had 18 months ago or so where we first started to look that involved, it included a, a, a musical performer, a, a classical guitarist, I mentioned. And it seemed to me that there were interesting parallels there too, where, for instance, he would say that if things got out of, um, that he too had this idea of a place of safety, that if things mm-hmm. went pear-shaped and slipped sideways and, and something happened with the performance he was giving with other people, he would then he would then just focus on getting back into time with those other people, mm-hmm. getting back into tempo. And that would give him the opportunity to sort of settle down and then step out again with his solo part. And and it made me realize that that here are, you know, surgery, polar exploration, 
combat flying, uh, classical music, apparently completely different areas. But actually, there's an awful lot we can learn from one another. And I thought in the last couple of minutes of this conversation, because we're, we're getting towards the end now, um, I thought maybe have you got have you got comments about about what the potential might be for moving across these disciplinary boundaries that boundaries that often hem us in? Sure, I think there's enormous possibilities. The engineering profession is split up into mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, civil engineers, aero engineers. And those barriers need to come down because the world is changing. And the challenge to deliver the technology is cross-disciplinary, the way in which artificial intelligence is being applied, for example. So I think there's enormous scope to bring the engineering community closer together. Thank you. I would just like to mention something which I would just end on. I'm the honorary treasurer of a, a fund called the Juno Watkins Memorial Fund, which is based in the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. That fund supports young people to go on expeditions. So if you're a young person out there, do go to the Scott Polar Research Institute site and search out the Juno Watkins Memorial Fund. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Phil, Phil I, I know that you, I mean, you're not flying combat airplanes now or teaching, but you're, you're, you're expanding your... Um, you're, you're, you're bringing your insights and your wisdom, I guess, aren't you, beyond the field of combat flying. I just wondered if you had any final thoughts about this idea of, of cross-disciplinary uh, fertilisation. I think cross-disciplinary fertilisation is absolutely fantastic. Um, I first contacted you uh, two and a half years ago when I read your article about the puppeteers and magicians, which I remember telling everybody at work, and it absolutely transformed the way I view things. Um, the thing is, though, when you're in a kind of high-consequence, high-reliability, which really what all our words is, is kind of a bit of a minefield. And sometimes the simple lessons that we learn, the very, very simple things about who's speaking to who and who's asking the questions from who, sometimes when you're... When, when, when it's too when you're too familiar with it you, you miss those things because you're more focusing on the technical elements of it so sometimes it's useful to look at somebody else that walks through a similar minefield um, and, I, and i'm sure that surgeons coming to combat aviation will probably will probably be able to to contribute massive masses as well because it's interesting that the different air different sectors have different solutions to different problems and and things grow naturally to evolve for that thing and sometimes being able to just sim take yourself back and just simplify things has got a value all on its own because human minds they can't remember very much and sometimes it's nice to have visual pictures um yeah i think that's absolutely right and i mean to, to me one of the interesting things is that if you are i mean for me with a medical background talking to people who are extremely expert in in combat flying and polar exploration neither of which i know anything about means that there's a whole lot of stuff I don't have to think about because nobody expects me to know about all the technicalities of your world and so and vice versa I imagine so we can concentrate on the ideas that we have in common and the and the sort of principles that we can identify and I think over the last hour we've we've identified a number of really important principles that I think well I hope um, will be as illuminating for for you as they have been for me and I think this idea of of thinking, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of work has been done between, for example, civil aviation and medicine. But I think the idea of, of of a very different kind of aviation, in this case, combat flying, and a very different kind of risk in in terms of polar exploration and these and these wider issues about safety in organisations. I think that they are they open fascinating areas to um, to explore. But unfortunately, we've run 
pretty much out of time. So it just remains to say a huge thank you to Phil Bayman, to Dougal Goodman, and of course to Gresham College for um, hosting this series of lectures and to all of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Roger. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.